You know, normally we take a passage of Scripture and we dive into it, or we take a topic and we bring the Scriptures to it. Today, we're going to deal with a, a biographical sermon in which we're going to look at a real pioneer, I believe, a person who we benefit from, Isaac Watts. Some of you will know who that is. Probably most of you have never even heard that name, but we're going to go to school on Isaac Watts, the person, and some of the wonderful worship songs that he's written together. And uh, when, after we spend some time uh, focusing on him, then at the end, we're going to sing some of his songs together. And I think that'll be a rich time as we do that, as we do so to worship, appreciating the stuff that he has written, and then singing that back, letting it filter through our mind and out our mouth. I think, I think we'll benefit from that together. And so I hope you, I hope you enjoy this. But uh, if you have a Bible or a device, would you take it and go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to begin this morning, Colossians chapter 3. You may also want to pull out your uh, message notes, which are uh, inside your worship folder. And that has uh, the verse that we're going to start with there, as well as some white space, especially over on the back, that as some things come uh, true that might be worth remembering, you can write them down to hold on to for... Uh, for practice into your own life. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. It says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Well, Isaac Watts was known as the father of hymnody. He was also called the pastor hymnologist. He was a pastor, and so you see his heart for people as well as the word of God and the truths of God come out in the things that he wrote. He was also known probably best as the poet of the New Covenant because so much of what Isaac Watts wrote, especially in his hymns and songs, brought to bear the truth of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, bringing about a whole new deal that's made possible to us, salvation through the shed blood of Jesus. And so he wrote so convictingly about that. And one of the things I want you to grab hold of is just this truth that I think you'll see in his songs, is this aspect that theology should lead to doxology. That theology, understanding the Word of God and the, the truths about God, shouldn't just end there, but it should lead us to worship. It should lead us to praise. It should lead us to respond back to God. That theology without doxology just leads to dead, dry orthodoxy. And you've all known Christians that are like that. They know a lot about the Bible, but it doesn't seem to transfer into anything in their life, right? I mean, they know a lot, but they don't seem to show a whole lot of passion and love for God. Or, on the other side, doxology without theology leads to emotionalism and me-focused faith. And again, you've known Christians like that. They love to worship, but it seems like maybe that doesn't impact anything once they leave this room, right? They worship, but it doesn't transfer to what they know and live out during the week about knowing and loving Jesus. And so we're going to see that as we look into the life 
and the songs of Isaac Watts. But before we start, let me, let me just open us in prayer. And so if you'd bow your heads, and uh, I'm going to start with a prayer that is actually <clears throat> one of Isaac Watts' hymns. And so let's pray together. And so now I ask, come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, and kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, and with all thy quickening powers, come and shed abroad a Savior's love, and that shall kindle ours. Amen. Well, <clears throat> Isaac Watts was born in 1674 in Britain. Many of us aren't experts on British history, and so let me kind of place that in time and space and history for you. Eleven years prior to that, the bubonic plague had swept through England, killing over 100,000 people in London alone. That was over a fourth of the population. In the city of Southampton, which is where Isaac Watts was born, it was almost completely depopulated by the bubonic plague. In the first part of the 17th century, Roman Catholics had tried to assert divine rights to rule as absolutionists over church and state. So there was all of this going on between faith and how to worship and how you were allowed to worship. That seems so foreign to us because most of us have grown up in America where the freedom of worship and the freedom to worship who and how you choose is something that our founding fathers founded this nation upon. You understand that a little bit more as you understand what was going on in other parts of the world. And so at that time period, the first part of the 17th century, that was going on. Roman Catholics were trying to seize the power. In 1642, Charles I engaged a civil war with Parliament, but that didn't go so well. He lost not only the civil war, but his head. And so after that, Oliver Cromwell became the Lord Protector. And what he tried to do is unite the country as a commonwealth. But that just led to another civil war with Scotland and the Presbyterians, who they had their own religious factions and aspects going on as well. Well, in 1660, Parliament invited Charles II to become king, and he tried to assert his authority over church and state by declaring that the Anglican Church, the Church of England, would be the only church that you would be allowed to worship and practice in. And so that became law in 1662. And so at that time, when that became law, anyone who wanted to worship apart from the Anglican Church and apart from the state-approved liturgy would be jailed and in some cases even hanged. And when that happened, 2,000 Anglican ministers left the Church of England and they became dissenters. They became nonconformists. They felt that the liturgy, 
that was produced by the state was too Roman Catholic. And in truth, it was because they were trying to make everybody happy. It was more about uniting the people than it was about following the scriptures and the word of God. And these pastors felt like, no, we need to found our worship and on our truth and the proclaiming of the scriptures more on the scriptures than on the liturgy of the state, and that pastors should be free to bring the scriptures freely and to preach how they felt God was leading and convicting them. But when that happened, again, anyone attending any other church was considered a threat to the government. And as so, there was huge fines and imprisonments and so forth. One of the Probably most well-known pastors who suffered that fate was a fellow by the name of, of John Bunyan. You remember him? During the 11 years that he spent in prison for being a nonconformist, for refusing to worship at the church operated by the state, he wrote a little book called Pilgrim's Progress, which today is still one of the leading bestsellers, a great work that really pictures what the Christian life is about. Well, all of that back to... Isaac Watts. Isaac's father was a deacon then in a nonconformist church. He was a cloth maker who ran a boarding school, but at the time of Isaac's birth, his dad was serving his second sentence for being a nonconformist. In fact, Isaac's mother would nurse Isaac, little baby Isaac, on the steps outside of his father's prison when she would go to just encourage her husband. But even so, Isaac's father was in and out of prison all throughout Isaac's childhood, but even so, he was very much involved in Isaac's uh, 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 spiritual development. It was very important to him that his son know and love Jesus. And so, uh, Isaac grew up in that environment. He began writing poetry as a child, and what you'll pick up on pretty quickly is he wrote with great depth. In fact, when he was seven years old, his mother called him to the table one day and said, Isaac, I want you to write something original for me right here. Write some poetry, not something that you've done before. Write something original for me here. And so as a little seven-year-old, he sat there on the t at the table, and he wrote this uh, this piece of poetry, I've got it there in your notes, it'll be on the screens as well. Here's what he wrote at seven. He said, I am a vile, polluted lump of earth, so I've continued even since my birth. Although Jehovah grace does daily give me, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me. Come, therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws relieve me, and wash me in thy blood, O Christ, and grace divine impart, then search and try the corners of my heart that I in all things may be fit to do service to thee and thy praise too. And if you didn't notice it before, <clears throat> not only is this a piece of poetry, but you see it's an acrostic. There the first letter, if you look down the left-hand column, was Isaac Watts' name, seven years old. I was thinking when I was seven... I was a little boy in Moundsville, West Virginia, and uh, we lived in houses with woods behind us, and I pretty much spent my days, you know, running with uh, friends, playing in the woods, building forts, and uh, you know, when you're a little boy playing in the woods all day, you don't go home to go to the bathroom, and um, the mark 
of a manhood when I was seven years old, I remember, was your willingness to pee in your own face. And so, that's just, I'm not prescribing that. I'm just saying, this was Isaac Watts as a seven-year-old. This was me as a seven-year-old. Well, he was offered scholarships to go to Oxford or to Cambridge, but to accept those scholarships would mean you had to be an Anglican, and so because he would not do so, um, he declined both of those and he rolled in a dissenting academy. At 16, he was at home on break, and Isaac said one day to his father, the singing of God's praise is the part of worship closest to heaven. But its performance among us is the worst on earth. You see, worship in that time and in their church and in churches around, what they would do is they would only sing the Psalms. And so what they would do is uh, they would read a line from one of the Psalms and then they would just sing it back together, kind of in a real metric kind of pattern kind of thing. And and Isaac referred to these as ugly hymns. They were clunky. Uh, they weren't beautiful. He felt, again, worship should be beautiful. And he questioned, why are we not singing about Jesus? And so his father said to him, well, if you do not like what we're singing, then give us something better. And so that afternoon, Isaac sat down and as a 16-year-old, wrote his first hymn, and he based it on Revelation chapter 5. Now, many of you will be familiar with Revelation chapter 5, but I don't want to presume that you all are. You know, the book of Revelation is a vision, and in this vision, this dream, John has this part in chapter 5, a very familiar passage. So let me read that first, and then we'll talk about the, the hymn that Isaac wrote based on that. So again, if you want to follow along, the verses will be up here. Revelation chapter 5 just reads this way. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept. And I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy 
to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So a great passage of worship that was presented to John in the book of Revelation. And so Isaac focused on that and sat down and wrote this, his first hymn. Let me just recount it for you. I'll be up here on the screen. He wrote, Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst the Father's throne. Prepare new honors for his name and songs before unknown. Let elders worship at his feet, the church adore around with vials full of odors sweet and harps of sweeter sound. And those are the prayers of the saints, and these the hymns they raise. Jesus is kind, of, is kind to our complaints. He loves to hear our praise. Eternal Father, who shall look into thy secret will? Who but the Son should take that book and open every seal? He shall fulfill Thy great decrees, the Son deserves it well. Lo, in His hand the sovereign keys of heaven and death and hell. Now, to the Lamb that once was slain, be endless blessings paid. Salvation, glory, joy remain forever on Thy head. Thou hast redeemed our souls with blood, hast set the prisoner free, has made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign with Thee. The worlds of nature and of grace are put beneath thy power. Then shorten these delaying days and bring the promised hour. Yeah, not bad for your first go-round, you think? <laughs> and so that night they sang Isaac's hymn for the first time in their church. And they loved it so much that they sang it nine times. Now, I say that just in case there's some of you who don't like modern worship and think it's too repetitive and so forth. So even here, at the birth of the hymn, nine times. Well, as you can put together, Isaac was obviously brilliant. He was learning Latin by age four, Greek at age nine. He learned French when he was 11, just so he could better converse with his refugee neighbors and Hebrew at 13. He authored dozens of textbooks, including one on logic that became the premier textbook of his day, 
that they used at Yale, by the way, which was one of the schools that rejected him for not being Anglican. He preached his first sermon on his 24th birthday. And at 25, he became an assistant pastor, but he was plagued with illness. At 27, he became the lead pastor despite his hesitance due to his ongoing struggles with illness. But even so, within two years, the church had grown to the point of needing to move to a larger facility. And two years later than that, they had to move again because they were up to 428 people from their original 60 members. But illness continued to plague him. He had to hire an assistant to write and to read for him. But then he had 10 years of sustained good health and ministry as a result of it. He started to become well-known, a best-selling author, including his first volume of hymns. He wrote books on education and philosophy and geometry and astronomy and poetry. He had broad interest. You see, he felt that God was the God of all truth. There was no secular and spiritual. God was God overall, and so he studied and wrote on all realities. He became known as the father of hymnody, not because he was necessarily the first one to ever write a hymn, but he certainly wrote better hymns and more than anyone else of his era. And, and in his hymns was such deep content. Not only that, he would draw upon emotions as well. Again, not just theology, but theology leading to doxology. He composed hymns uh, primarily for the worship of his own congregation. And he felt that the dominance of, of the songs of David and of the Psalms were dominating worship. And as a result, they were overshadowing the truths of the gospel and the need to emphasize Jesus more and his finished work on the cross. Isaac said this, he said, Why should the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ be wrapped up in the dark shadows of Jewish worship? He felt that the coming of Jesus should change everything. And as a result, it should especially impact our worship. Even so, many objected because they had always done it this way. But Watts refuted, if we can preach in our own words, why can we not sing in our own words? Remember, he wrote that book on logic, right? He said this, he said, engage with these songs and see if they aren't a gift from God to produce in you a worship of Jesus. And so he was a pioneer of understanding worship singing as something that should produce in us an emotional response towards God. That worship is not just singing mindlessly words, but it is singing words in a way that filters through our heart and produces a response in us, an emotional response in us towards God. All total, he wrote over 700 hymns. Only Charles Wesley, the American uh, pastor and evangelist and, and hymn writer, wrote more. More Charles Wesley, who wrote 6,000 hymns, though, said he would give all 6,000 up had he been able to write, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. 
Isaac, some of his most well-known hymns was that, When I survey the wondrous cross as well as, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? O God, our help in ages past. Jesus shall reign. Joy to the world. You've probably heard that one once or twice. And we're marching to Zion. We're going to sing, again, at the end here, we're going to sing a, several of those as part of our continuing worship together today. But what you'll notice as you look at and sing uh, the, the, the worship songs that Isaac Watts wrote, you'll, you'll see this aspect of contextualization. Tim Keller says, context, the, the, he says this, he says, the goal of contextualization is to make the offense of the gospel clear to the unbeliever. And you'll see that in Isaac Watts' song. You see, the gospel is good news, but it's only good news if you understand it in the context of our condition. Our condition is separated from a holy God because of our sin, that it's offensive because there's something wrong with us that only the shed blood of Jesus can fix. But it's made available to us through the cross. And that's the good, good news. Well, Isaac Watts had a romantic encounter. Elizabeth Singer uh, fell in love with his poetry. And so she wanted uh, to meet Isaac. But, however, he wasn't attractive. He was short. He was sallow-faced. He was pale. He had a a crooked, hooked nose. In contrast, Miss Singer was beautiful. But she wrote Isaac nonetheless, and they dated for a while, and Isaac proposed marriage, but his proposal was rejected. Miss Singer wrote back, Mr. Watts, I only wish I admired the casket as much as the jewel. I only wish that the beauty that flowed from your pen seeped into your person. She might have had a few disparaging marks about his mother as well. I'm not sure. <laughs> but in 1712, illness returned. And so Isaac left pastoring for four years. His friend Thomas Abney invited him to stay with his family on their estate while he recovered. And he ended up staying for 36 years until his death. During that time, he tutored the Abney children. He also wrote premier, uh, a pre, uh, premier textbook on childhood education and teaching children spiritual truths and a children's book on prayer and catechism. He also uh, produced a book of hymns on a Christology teaching of Jesus, being one of the first to interpret the Psalms and all scripture, for that matter, is being about Jesus. That's called the redemptive historical hermeneutic. Of that historic, redemptive historical hermeneutic, J.I. Packer says this. He says, J.I. Packer, a, a, a theologian of our era, says this. He says, Christ is the subject matter of scripture. All is written to bear witness to him. He is the sum of the whole Bible he is to be found in every leaf, almost every line. And so Isaac Watts was one of the first to see that and to bring that forward and to present that constant truth. In fact, the, the book that he wrote, Taking 
the Psalms, singing the Psalms in a way that focused it about the new covenant, about Jesus, what he would do is he would take, like when the Psalms would talk about pardon of sin, he would carry that forward to the merits of our Savior. When the Psalms would talk about the, the blood of bulls and goats, he would bring that forward to understand that that was ultimately picturing the sacrifice of Christ. That when the Psalms would talk about kings and the bloodline of David, he would tie that to Jesus. When the Psalms would talk about the enemies of Israel, he would bring it to the enemies of our era, being Satan and sin and death. And when the Psalms talked about mercy and grace, he would talk about it being only available through Christ and the cross. See, constantly pointing to Jesus. That's why he became known as the poet of the new covenant of the covenant made possible only through Jesus' coming and his death in our place on the cross. And so there was about Isaac Watts this gospel-centeredness that, again, as a church that so understands that and so proclaims that, we stand grateful to someone like Isaac Watts who was the first to really pioneer an understanding that constantly pointed to it's all about Jesus all the time. Well, let me talk through some lessons. This isn't just a history teaching. Let's talk about some lessons that we can learn from Isaac Watts, both his person, his life, and his songs, because I think there's many that has aspect to us today. I've left some space on the back there that if you want to write any of these, if any of these hit home for you, you can certainly jot it down. One, the first, I have ten. The first is this. That for those who complain about singing modern songs instead of hymns, I think Isaac Watts is a good reminder that the hymns were at one time the modern songs. And so again, there's nothing wrong with hymns, there's nothing wrong with modern songs, but I think that helps to keep it in perspective, doesn't it? Number two, Isaac Watts is the consummate example of pinning worship songs of deep, theological truth, that when you see the songs of Isaac Watts, there's such depth, such rich, deep theology. And you know, one of the things I appreciate here at New Life is that the songs that we sing are songs that are just dripping with gospel truth. I say to people sometimes who say that they don't particularly like our worship or it's new or it's different to them, I say, listen, just read the words. You'll preach the gospel to yourself several times before the sermon even begins. And Isaac Watts, certainly in his songs, you see that aspect. Number three, I think we owe to Isaac Watts an understanding of the scripture as being all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. His name is written on every page. That every aspect from Old Testament all the way through to the end is continually pointing to Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Number four, is what I call light and then heat. That all of Isaac Watts' songs seem to follow this pattern of starting with truth, but then responding to it. You know, again, theology leading to doxology. It's not enough to just get the truth. The truth must impact us in a way that comes out of us, not only in the worship of our singing, but in the worship of our lives. Number five, that in, in, in the age of enlightenment, which is, again, the time in history 
where Isaac Watts lived, which everything was about the mind in the Age of Enlightenment. That became the focus of the day. But even in the Age of Enlightenment, Isaac Watts emphasized feelings in response to deep spiritual truth. That it's not enough to just talk deep orthodoxy. It needs to well up something in us. That there is both beauty and truth. That we're not just one-dimensional beings. We have minds, but we also have emotions and imaginations. And if you neglect any of those, we will go looking for their fulfillment in something else. And so Isaac Watts understood that in a way that said truth should, should seep into us and impact us and grab hold of us and then lead us to response. Number six, I think one of the lessons that we can take from Isaac Watts is this aspect of gospel faithfulness in weakness. You know, he never used his illness as an excuse. But rather... He, he used that to just express greater dependence on God in order to accomplish so much for God. He didn't say, oh, I've, I just have all this illness. I can't really do anything. No, in his illness, in his weakness, in his, in his struggles, he just all the more leaned into God in order to give him what he needed to be able to serve him to the fullest level. Number seven, <clears throat> Isaac Watts made a massive investment into children. He understood that God loves children and investing much in their spiritual development is important. Again, it's another thing that I love about New Life, that we understand that. That, that pouring much into the development of our children, not only developing, but seeing them come to know and love and serve Jesus is important. And some of, some of the, the children's songs that Isaac Watts wrote have more theology in them than some of our modern-day songs. He understood that about children. Number eight is just this, Jesus front and center all the time. We say that a lot around here because we believe it, and Isaac Watts understood that. Charles Wesley said this of Isaac Watts. He said he opened his Bible and made a beeline for Jesus as quickly as possible. I just love that, don't you? He just saw Jesus everywhere. He understood that the scriptures was all pointing to Jesus and what he would come and the salvation, the new covenant made possible to us through his shed blood, his work on the cross. Number nine, Isaac Watts used his gifts and his talents for the highest calling of God and his glory. That no matter what he was doing, whether it was the work of the church or the work of other you know, studies. He understood it was all for God. That we need to be involved in bringing out the truth and the reality of who God is. And it all should just shine glory onto him. And then finally, <clears throat> is just graciousness and unity. Isaac Watts always fought and sought harmony in the church. And he hated division. In fact, in his dialogue with John Locke. They disagreed on some matters and they uh, dialogued back and forth over them. And John Locke had this to say about Isaac Watts. He said, after our conversation, I have to say I disagree with Mr. Watts profoundly, but I find myself loving him more dearly as a result of our conversation. 
What an example to understand that we can disagree, but we can do it in a way that still expresses love and concern for each other. We can be gracious to one another in a way, even, even in the midst of our disagreements. Well, at his funeral, David Jennings said this. He said, while Isaac Watts is now celebrating the new songs of heaven, how many thousands of pious worshipers are this day lifting up their hearts to God in the sacred songs that he taught them on earth? Though his voice is not any longer heard by us, yet his words, like those of the day and the night, have gone to the ends of the world. And so I thought it would be good for us to finish by singing several of Isaac Watts' best-known hymns. Now, again, some of you, depending upon your Christian background, some of these will bring familiar memories. You'll know these songs. Some of you, it's, it's brand new. And that's okay. You've learned new worship songs before, haven't you? Right? It's okay. You can learn something new. But no matter where you are, what I would ask is that you sing them not nostalgically, but as you are singing them, let your mind reflect on the truth that Isaac Watts is bringing. And then as you do so, let it filter through your heart to bring a response of praise and worship back to God. So let's be standing together. And let's, we're, I'm going to pray and then we're going to continue to worship. I would remind you that while we're, we're going to sing four songs. And I know that's going to throw some of you off. Some of you, during that second song, when there's no offering bag going in front of you, you're going to be freaked out. Just hold on, it's coming. Four songs. You know, this is earlier than normal. We're not going later. You know, we, we, we only sing a couple songs at the beginning. We know what we're doing here. You'll be fine. While we're singing, though, I want to remind you, again, worship. Read the words. Read the content of the words as well. And then I want to remind you, too, that we'll have prayer team. It's our custom to have prayer team people on both sides who would love to pray with you about anything. And so while we're worshiping, if the songs resonate something in you or there's just stuff going on in your life that you'd benefit from being prayed for, you just feel the freedom. We've got, we've got four songs. You've got time. <laughs> Go to any of these people and let them pray for you. They would love to do so. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, I just thank you for Isaac Watts, and not only him, but other men and women who for the last 2,000 years were pioneers, men and women, many of whom we don't even know, God, but we benefit from them. We stand on the shoulders of, of roads that they carved out for us, of things that they understood, that teachings that they helped develop that enhance us in the way we understand and see and know. Lord, thank you especially for this particular servant, Isaac Watts, and as we Sing these songs together. Lord, let the truths of these, these aspects, especially again as they focus over and over and over again, Jesus, on what you, did for, uh, what you did for us on the cross. Lord, let it grab hold of our hearts. Lord, in ways that just impacts us deeply and so that we can't help but respond with worship. And so receive this now. May it be a pleasant offering to you, we pray in your name. Amen.